0: So people say, well, I'm, I'm afraid of getting blood clots. Well, you you know, the incidence of getting blood clots are going to be higher if you actually get the COVID-19 virus. Dr. Jonathan Bactari You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's going to really revolutionize things. Which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Baktari, M.D., Dr. Baktari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Baktari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. So, in this episode, what I'd like to do is kind of maybe hit on all of or some of the questions that people often ask me about the pandemic and the COVID-19 virus. So. Let me try to go through those. And, you know, as usual, my job is to make sense out of some of the noise that goes around. Some things are true, some things that are not so true, and maybe some things in the middle, but let's clarify some of the questions and concerns that people have at this this stage of the pandemic. The first question I really wanna go over is this idea that, hey, maybe I don't need the vaccine if I get sick. You know, I'm going to use a whole cocktail. I'll take azithromycin, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, doxycycline, uh, zinc, and what have you. And they have this cocktail already, uh, which I actually don't have an issue with. But uh, the question is, hey, can I use that in place of getting the vaccine? And, you know, my answer to this is kind of twofold, because even if some of that stuff eventually turns out to have some efficacy is sort of beyond me how that would stop you from getting the vaccine. If anything, what you want to do is you want to kind of do all the above. And if we know, for example, the vaccine, if you accept the data is very efficacious and you want to add other things that maybe haven't been proven, but you think might be proven, or you just feel better because you heard it somewhere. As long as it's safe, I guess I don't have a problem with it, but I don't really understand how saying well i'm going to take this so i don't have to do this in life we sort of take multiple precautions and even with other disease states you know often we do you know if you have a heart attack we may put you on medication but we also may make you lose weight we may you know have you uh, do cardio rehab so uh, this idea that one thing will take the place of another thing is not something we normally do anyway so why would we do it in this place so you know let's use something that's very effective that we know is effective if on top of it people who have had heart attacks from stress go on to do prayers meditation biofeedback to lower their cortisol level to remove stress that's all an additive and and probably works on some level and is good. And I promote it, but that wouldn't be in place of your heart medication, if that makes sense. My next thing is to talk about those alternative medications. Broadly speaking, you know, these sort of off-the-shelf medications that we've had for years, whether it's ivermectin, uh, or azithromycin or others that have been sitting on the shelf and we're just going to reuse it for this purpose i brought this up in one of my other videos but you know uh, a virus is quite different than almost anything else it doesn't make itself amenable to off the drug off the shelf drugs usually uh, only because the virus is not an organism you can attack very easily. It doesn't have any machinery, as I have said before, to attack. And that's normally how we kill germs. We attack germs by finding a vulnerable part of their metabolism, reproduction. Since viruses on their own don't have metabolism, and since viruses on their own don't replicate, unless they're inside of a host, in this case, a human host, a human cell, it's very difficult to attack a virus uh, even generically speaking sort of trying to get to someone you know who's sitting inside of a plane from outside the plane it's hard to get at that get at them without damaging the plane and so this is why antivirals as a class are very difficult to develop because we're trying to attack something that's sitting in a cockpit of a plane that we really like and cherish like our body or our cells so Antivirals are very, very difficult to produce. You know, we talked about this with HIV, it took decades to come up with effective antivirals. And that's really because of this need to try to figure out where to attack a virus that's already actually inside of our cells. So is it possible that one of these off-the-shelf medications will one day uh, be a good antiviral medication towards COVID-19? It's possible. It's possible. I just think it would be very difficult. I think the odds, you know, uh, argue against it, but it's theoretically possible. Traditionally, we've had much better luck uh, addressing viruses with vaccines, uh, HIV being an example where we haven't been able to do that, to come up with an effective vaccine yet, but there's certainly a Nobel Prize waiting for someone who figures that vaccine out. But generally speaking, it's very, very difficult to attack a virus that's already inside our body. So again, I'm a little skeptical of some of the repurpose on the shelf medication becoming effective antivirals is possible, uh, but it would be very difficult. And I guess um, you know, we you're gonna hear this you know, from a lot of people and why you should believe them on this medication or that. But, you know, I'm a pulmonary critical care expert. I've been practicing specifically vaccine medicine for over 10 years, way before the COVID pandemic. So, yeah, it is my opinion that I think some of these medications are going to be very difficult to prove effectiveness as possible. It's my opinion, but why should my opinion count? My opinion should count, I think, because this is what I've been doing for a very long time. Everyone has their opinion. Uh Hopefully, I can share with you my experience and knowledge of practicing medicine all these years and being a vaccine specialist uh, for more than a decade. You know, I've gotten uh, most of my questions from people who've come up to me and approached me and and, and emailed me, but if you also have questions, feel free to put in the comment section below. I will try to address those in the upcoming videos. Or if you have some ideas that you want me to cover, I'm more than happy to do that also. Let's talk about the side effects. So, um, you know, a lot of people who are hesitant to get the vaccine often point to potential side effects. And what's interesting is that almost any side effect that we have heard about, no matter how rare, with the COVID vaccine is almost by definition, there's a higher incidence of it if you actually get the virus. So people say, well, I'm, I'm afraid of, you know, getting blood clots. Well, you you know, the incidence of getting blood clots are going to be higher if you actually get the COVID-19 virus or heart issues um, or any of the very rare side effects. While still rare in some cases, they're still at a much higher uh, proportion if you actually get the virus than if you get the vaccine. So not getting the vaccine because you're afraid of side effects doesn't make sense since you may potentially get some of those same side effects with the virus anyway. The other question um, that I hear is, you know, should I wait? Um, between the flu shot and the COVID vaccine. And generally speaking, in the world of vaccine medicine, waiting between vaccines is not a thing. The only time it's a thing when are a handful of vaccines that we have that we call live vaccines. They're actually live viruses. But with the mRNA vaccines, certainly the, and the flu vaccine is not a live vaccine unless it's the nasal one. But for our purposes, it's not a, live vaccine. So I think for non live vaccines, there's no reason to wait. And certainly you wouldn't want to wait and then come down with this, with either the flu or COVID-19 while you were waiting. So definitely if you're offered the b- both to go ahead and get them. And in fact, there's something in the works that p- potentially combine the COVID and the flu shot potentially for next flu season. So as far as I know, I can't think of a reason not to get the covid vaccine for medical reasons because what's in the covid vaccine has generally not in other vaccines that you may not have tolerated so to get it because you don't tolerate tetanus shot or or something else I'm not sure it would cross apply in terms of getting an exemption a medical exemption to get the covid-19 vaccine as far as I know there is nothing I can think of that would prevent someone from getting a COVID-19 vaccine for medical reasons. Now, it may not be effective in someone who doesn't have a a strong immune system. Let's say you just had a bone marrow transplant or you've gotten a lot of chemotherapy and your immune system is weakened, so you may not be able to generate a robust response to a vaccine but not being able to generate a robust response is different than saying i shouldn't get the vaccine it may not be as effective in terms of you know generating an antibody response but that would just be almost like a you know failure to get the antibody response but you shouldn't have an adverse effect because you didn't generate a strong antibody response the next topic i'm going to cover is you know why should children get vaccinated i know the uh, the covid-19 vaccines that are, have been approved in 12 and above. Um, And, you know, the question comes up, why should we vaccinate children? Well, first of all, the amount of pediatric hospitalization with the Delta variant has significantly gone up. And so we know more kids are getting it. And also, you know, as part of preventing population transmission, the more of the population we can uh, vaccinate, the more likely we are to reduce the transmission rate within general public so those are all really good reasons to vaccinate um, children the study on children 5 to 11 should be coming out at the end of november and potentially approved for use by then the study looking for six months to uh, five years old should be coming out in december based on things that i've seen so i would say within the last quarter of this year we should Potentially see approval uh, of the COVID nineteen vaccines for the younger population, the children. So that's coming. The other question is, you know, vaccinating uh, women when they're pregnant, and I certainly hear the concern. I think rightfully so. Many parents are concerned when they're expecting. But I think the question really is, you know, what happens if you get the vaccine, and we know it's, you know, we know it's safe versus what happens if you get COVID while you're pregnant, because it's it's not necessarily like I won't get COVID and I won't get the vaccine, that might be out of your control. So when deciding on whether to get the COVID vaccine during pregnancy, you also have to decide, am I okay with getting COVID during pregnancy? And if you're worried about the vaccine, might go through the placenta, again, there's very little data that that's true, but. Uh, then you also have to wonder, you know, will the virus go through the placenta if I get COVID? So it's not like I won't get the vaccine and I won't get COVID. Sometimes that might not be the two choices. The next thing I want to talk about is boosters. So we're seeing a very slow rollout of the boosters. You know, a few weeks ago, it was rolled out very limited to people who are very immune compromised. We're seeing some back and forth between the FDA and CDC now but. High-risk population, elderly population, people at risk. And I think what we're really seeing is a slow rollout of the boosters, however you get there. I doubt you'll be watching this video in three months and people, not everyone will be offered the booster. I think that will be the case. Just because the vaccine efficacy is starting to drop after two doses, I think that's very much probably tied in to the antibody levels dropping after six eight months. And I think, you know, we're all on our way to our third booster. I think the outstanding question really to answer in three, six, 12 months is, is this really a booster or is a three-shot series? I I talked about that in my video last time. I'll provide a link up there. You can take a look at that video. But as I said on that video, today's booster, today's first booster is tomorrow's three-shot series potentially. If it's not, then, and it turns out that, you know, we're just going to have to do this potentially annually, like the flu, that would be different. So the question really is going to be, is getting three shots going to give you lifelong immunity? We're going to find that out. If three shots will give you lifelong immunity, even against other potential variants that may come out, or are we going to be coming up with a new version of the vaccine every season to cover the known variants at that time? So those are... Um, Things in the future, we we're going to find out. People ask me, what, you know, what are the chances uh, that you know this will be a third and final booster versus and give us lifelong immunity versus something that we're going to get more seasonally potentially? I think you know the data is 50-50. I think the things that argue that. It will become seasonal. You know, our one coronaviruses tend to reoccur after a year or two, despite being infected. So we know coronaviruses in general don't give you lifelong immunity often, can get them over and over, although there are many types of coronaviruses also. And I think the fact that the antibody levels are dropping and we're seeing reduced vaccine efficacy potentially points in that direction. but. Having said all that, I still think the data is out. I think, I don't want to say we have an equal chance, but I don't think anyone could confidently say whether this third booster will give us lifelong immunity or just buy us more time until we need a seasonal one. But I think, I don't want to say it's 50-50, but it could go either way. The question, if you're watching this video a year from now, with the first booster, was that the last one in a series or was that one of uh, sort of a yearly booster or every few year booster? We'll see. So um, I also want to say that a lot of people who've watched our videos have told me how they've shared the video with others and and it's really made an impact because some of the especially the COVID content we're putting out uh, serves up the information in a balanced and fair way and allows people to make the right decision so please feel free to share this with other people in your circle people you love family members just so they can have the right information because medical information especially this pandemic information is convoluted it comes from different sides different angles different agendas And here on this channel, we just break it down to you. We give you the straight signs in a way that uh, is meaningful and resonates and helps you make decisions. So so the question is, you know, should we uh, space out some of these vaccines, the COVID vaccines, more or less? I, I think during a pandemic when there is significant mortality from this virus, I think you have to balance, you know, spacing out these vaccines too long to see how effective they are versus 3 or 4 weeks versus someone catching it while they're waiting 2 3 months between doses. So, you know, just it's simply, you know, it's more like the dosing of the the how much micrograms of the of the mRNA you put into the vaccine. I mean, having more is not always better because then you might have more side effects and you know, waiting longer may not be of any benefit and you may expose people to catching it while they're waiting. So it's not always clear that w- there, there's benefit in one way but no downside. The question was, um, is there any benefit to spacing the vaccines any further out? And even if there was a benefit, we would have to do the clinical trials to prove it, not we can't just arbitrarily on our own try it because let's say there was no great benefit then we've waited for no reason and you know potentially people could, people could get sick during that period people will say you know if i get vaccinated do i have to wear a mask so the mask strategy in a in a pandemic is not yes you wear a mask everyone will be safe no if you don't wear a mask everyone won't be safe but wearing a mask in conjunction with a bunch of other things could potentially help um especially in an indoor situation. Obviously, if you're indoor with a lot of other vaccinated people, that may not be the case, but maybe if you're an indoor with a lot of unvaccinated people and let's say you have pre-existing conditions, it's just simply one more layer of protection that you're giving yourself. And the better quality that mask is, of course, the better, you know, and so I think just like everything we, we do, it's not like this is the one thing you do and you're good and this is the you know. And if you don't do that thing, you're no good. I think it's adding layers and layers of protection, especially if you know you're immunocompromised or have risk factors or you're going to be in a place where there's a lot of people and potentially a lot of unvaccinated people. It probably makes sense to add layers of protection. The other thing is that people say, you know, um I'm I don't want to get the vaccine because I'm very careful or uh I'm just going to take extra precautions and I'm not going to um get the virus. And I think at this stage of the game it's pretty clear that you know, maybe everyone's going to get the virus at some point. The question may be, what's your immune status? How much antibodies do you have when you finally get it? So I think if you view it that way, the question is, how much protection do you want when you finally get exposed to the virus? Because at the rate we're going, you know, it's not like you're not going to get the virus and you're not going to get the vaccine and everything will end like that. I think how it's going to probably end is we're all at some point going to be exposed to the virus. And the question is, you know, how prepared will our immune system be? You know, think of it like, you know, you're gonna go on a two mile hike, you know, how many bottles of water do you want with you when you start the hike? You want one bottle, three bottles, four bottles? I mean, some would argue the better prepared you are. And, you know, we do this in life with other things. You know, we know, you know, something's coming and so, we just get extra prepared. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic it was more like, well, some people will get it, some people won't, or some people will be exposed and some people won't. You know, because the first two SARS pandemic SARS and MERS pandemic sort of, you know, just went away on its own. And, you know, was there this feeling, okay, it'll come around for a few months and then it'll just go away and I'll be extra careful. But Uh, If you really stop viewing it like that, it really will, uh, you know, make you probably decide to get the vaccine. The other thing I'm going to talk about is people who say, you know, I'm really afraid of the genetic material that's in this vaccine, which is mRNA, because I don't want it to, you know, get inside of my body and and alter my genes and what have you. And first of all, you know, that's not how the vaccine works. The mRNA goes into your cells, and your own cell machinery produces the Spike protein that doesn't actually infect your chromosomes, as it were. But even if you were going to stipulate that it was, which is it doesn't, uh, you know, if you get infected with COVID, you're going to make billions of copies of the virus in your body. If you don't like an mRNA vaccine and the alternative is an mRNA virus, That's going to make billions and billions of copies in your body and go to your brain and go to your liver and go to your GI tract and your heart and to your muscles and replicate in all those organs. And that's going to be the full sequence, the full RNA sequence of the virus, making billions of copies. It's just kind of hard to say I'm not in favor of getting someone to inject a small amount of genetic material into my deltoid muscle which will disappear in a couple of days versus getting a virus that's going to replicate in my body with millions and billions of strands of RNA for several weeks. So if you had a choice between the two, I would make the argument you're, you know, better off getting a small portion of the RNA for the spike protein in your deltoid than having the full genetic sequence of the virus roam through your whole body making billions of copies. So the other um, question I often get is, you know, what about the long-term side effects of the vaccines, the mRNA vaccine? So I've already gone over that multiple times. If you want a link to one of the videos, just look up there. But I just want to reiterate just a little portion of it for people who haven't seen it. If you've seen it, just skip over this. But the real issue is, first of all, COVID-19 virus and, and the infection that goes with it As we all know, come with long-term side effects often. And they include, you know, memory fog, you know, mental status issues, fatigue and other long-term side effects in a small percentage of the people who get it. And there's a lot of recent reports looking at CAT scans of the brain and how the virus impacts brain cells and causes atrophy and what have you. So to speak of the long-term side effects, of the vaccine without also talking about the known long side effects of the virus it may may not be totally fair. But in terms of, you know, long-term side effects of the vaccine, if you understand that the vaccine itself disappears in your body after 48 hours, and even the spike proteins that it creates for your immune system to create antibodies towards, even they or disappear after 48 72 hours. So the idea that something that disappeared in your body will give you a long-term side effect is possible but it, it kind of goes against logic because it's, it's actually disappearing. It's sort of like if you had a sandwich and 5 years later you had a you know a belly pain. I guess it's possible but you know if you assume that It's disintegrated and it's gone. It's not going to give you long-term side effects. Now, the argument could be made, well, the antibodies it produces will produce long-term side effects. That, I guess, theoretically may be true. And that's where I would point to other vaccines and other vaccines where you do produce antibodies have side effects. But by and large in the vaccine world, most side effects to vaccines as a class tend to be short-term, often immediate to short-term and slightly mid-range, but very few vaccines Well, you get a tetanus shot and six years later, you're like, oh, I have this, you know, uh, I have the side effects. So as a class, vaccines don't lend, lend itself to long-term side effects appearing as possible. And I think when you couple that with the fact that the vaccine essentially disintegrates after a few days when you put that together, anything's possible. But even if there were a small percentage of long-term side effects, you have to then put that up against the long-term side effects of getting COVID and then say, you know, which, which one has a higher incidence of side effects? And, you know, we know from studies, the incidence of even the short-term rare side effects of the COVID vaccine are uh, nominal compared to the, the almost similar side effects with getting uh, the, the vaccine versus the virus. And the other question I get is, you know, um, if I've been infected with COVID and I have a good antibody response, ideally, do I need to get the vaccine? You know, we don't know which immunity lasts longer. We don't know if the immunity from getting infected lasts longer. Or getting the immunity, you know, the the antibody levels from getting the vaccine. So if you don't know which one's going to last longer or permanent or for life, let's say, then you're betting that you know which one it is. And since we don't know which one it is, it's probably better to bet on both horses than one if i can use that analogy because if you do both whichever one would have lasted longer you'll benefit from until the data is out there may come a time where the data will be out that natural immunity you know because there are many things you know for example if you get measles or if you get chickenpox you know you don't need the vaccine so that concept does exist that if you've gotten the disease you don't need the vaccine um we just don't know if that applies to this virus? And until we have the answers, it's probably better to sort of bet on both horses as opposed to just one. So I think the other question I get is, you know, now that the Delta variant's out and we have breakthrough cases, and like we talked about in my video from last week, for example, with the Pfizer vaccine, the vaccine efficacy has dropped into the 40s, potentially, based on that study. You know, why should I get the vaccine? Well, first of all, even if you would say 40, 50%, that's better than zero, right? Because, you know, 40, 50%. So if you take a population and you give the vaccine and 40% don't get the virus, that's better than if the 40% also got the virus as well as everyone else. So from a from a broader perspective, it's efficacious. It wasn't as efficacious as before, but it's still efficacious. So So that's number one. And it's... Still unclear, but there is some suggestion that even if you do get a breakthrough case, you're probably going to clear the virus sooner or better than if you didn't have it. But the other thing is that we know the vaccine efficacy in terms of death and hospital, severe hospitalization is still pretty good. So if you use that as a marker, for sure you should get it. We're just talking about you know the vaccine efficacy has gone down for catching it, but it hasn't gone down for for dying and getting a severe infection and winding up in the hospital. So again, you know, it's sort of like, unless this thing is perfect, I'm not doing it. I don't think we, you know, we practice medicine that way anyway. You know, you go in for a surgery, sometimes it doesn't solve the whole problem. You know, you go for back surgery. If you get 40% better from the back surgery, you know, potentially some people say, oh, that's a win. You know, they don't say, ah, unless you can get rid of everything and I'm going to be brand new, like I'm 20 years old and nothing ever happened to me. I don't want that surgery. In medicine, we try to, uh, you know, move the curve towards better, not necessarily totally gone. If you use those markers and if you use the markers of, you know, dying, they're uh, unbelievably valuable. So, um you know, people ask me, you know, what to tell people who are still have some vaccine hesitancy. Well, I mean, obviously at the the end of the day, you know, we have to be respectful to people who want or don't want any medical drug or or vaccine. And so one is to treat everyone with respect, but number two, I think we're really coming down to a core group of people who are probably, you know, it's going to be very difficult to move them as more and more people agree to get the vaccine. I think we're, we're, being reduced to a group that are just not going to be moved easily. And on some level, you know, this, this Delta variant is playing out to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. If you look at numbers, and so however you get there, a lot of people are not in that group are not going to be moved. I think, you know, if they haven't already gone the COVID infection, they're, they're looking at, at a high likelihood of contracting it. So as long as everyone has an informed idea of what, you know, people are up against, uh, they can make their own decision. But I think generally speaking, I have a lot of patients, you know, I tell them to take a cholesterol medicine. They don't take it, you know, and I tell them to, you know, lose weight and exercise. They don't do it. But I think this is a little bit different than the fact that if you don't take your cholesterol medicine, you're not impacting the population. So I think because population health is at is at stake here i think there is this urgency for some people to convince the people who are hesitant to go ahead and get the vaccine i get that uh, but i also want to respect the people who don't want to get the vaccine but it's important that we present the data the real science and show them that you know it, it it is efficacious and it does save lives and taking a vaccine is the right thing to do thank you for listening you can check out my website, jonathanbaktari.md.com to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, Baktari MD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. And as always, I'll see you next week on another episode of Baktari MD. Take care and be well.